0: our christmas series we we uh, looked at a messianic prophecy out of Isaiah Isaiah chapter 9 but i didn't really get a, a lot of time to talk about isaiah the prophet and his story is uh, is very compelling you know he's a leader in israel at the time in the in the, uh, the 700s under a tumultuous time and and isaiah was a he was a powerful leader he was a man of god you know if you look at the nation of israel you know If you look at their history in the Old Testament, you know that uh, it was kind of a rarity that they would have a leader who had a heart for God and who led uh, in a strong way in the direction that God wanted them to go. That was kind of a rare thing. Uh, They had a lot of leaders who would give in to the pressures of the religions and the cultures around them, who would turn away from God and lead them in other directions, both uh, to worship the Baals and you know, and, and through those things, rather than to stay true to God. And so Isaiah was this powerhouse of a leader. And so his story is compelling to look at. And I wanted to look at this morning um, his call. He was called by God to serve. And his calling was a, a pretty um, interesting process. And I think we can learn from his calling as to how God calls us. So if you want to turn to Isaiah chapter 6, we're going to look at this passage this morning, this chapter in the book of Isaiah. This is where we read about and discover Isaiah's call. Isaiah's calling starts with a spiritual encounter. A spiritual encounter. This is the case for all who are called by God. Each of us, each person called by God, must have an encounter with God. And Isaiah has an encounter His encounter is that Isaiah has a vision of God. He has a vision of God. Um, Let's read Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Follow along as I read. It was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet, and with two, they flew. They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations, and the entire building was filled with smoke. The nature of visions. Now listen, uh, People have visions, okay? Uh, We're told in the Bible that um, in the end times, young men and young women will have visions. And there are many people today that feel that they have a vision from God. This vision that Isaiah has is something altogether different. It is a vision directly from God that was meant not just for him, but for us, right? This vision is was direct or special revelation that came from God. That is why he ended up writing it down, and it's been preserved for us so that we can look at it. We call it Scripture because it was given under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Right? And so this is a special vision directly from God. If I have a vision of where I think God wants me to go in my life or what he wants me to do, that certainly can come from God and I get to interact with God on that. That's legitimate and real. But this is altogether different, it's distinct. In the Bible, we have individuals who had these kind of visions, Uh, a number of them. Ezekiel was one of the prophets that had a vision from God that he wrote down like this. Um, Different, but this type of revelation from God, right? Daniel was another uh, leader and prophet who had visions that he wrote down where God taught him or revealed something to him. In the New Testament, Paul had a vision. He was transported into the third heaven or the, uh, the place in which God dwells, and he was taught things. He saw things that were revelatory to him uh, from God. And then, of course, the apostle John who wrote the book of Revelation, that was a vision where he was transported into God's presence to learn things and to see things that God was teaching him. And so these visions come directly from God, the revelation, okay, and they reveal truth from God that is for the messenger and also for God's people. They're called, as I said, special revelation, and they're for those who follow Jesus. This vision that Isaiah has includes God in a temple, all right, his, where he dwells in heaven. Um, his presence, he's up high, so he's in a high position, which reflects his posture of leadership and power and authority. His train fills the temple, reflecting uh, the status that he has as, uh, as ruler and leader. And there are angels that are involved in this uh, vision, who are worshiping him. Interesting thing is the seraphim, as these angels are identified, this is the only place in the Bible, I like think there's two spots in Isaiah where they're mentioned. And so this is unique when it comes to um, the the beings that we know as angels that are part of God's army. They're part of the heavenly armies uh, who do a number of things. Uh, angels have a number of different responsibilities. They Transport or trans, um, um, they give messages right from God to people, they fight spiritual battles or warfare. And in this case, the seraphim are have a role to be in heaven in God's presence, and they're proclaiming with their voices who God is, they're proclaiming truth about Him. So they're mighty, they're called mighty seraphim in this passage. They have power, they have six wings, as it says, they cover their faces. Because no one can look at God. They cover their feet, right? They fly. So they're, they're massive uh, creatures. They have, so they have faces and they have feet. And, uh, and this is a bit of what we learn about them. As I said, they have thoughts and their voices give, uh, give voice to these thoughts and they proclaim truths about God. They say he's holy. He's distinct, he's above us, he's separate from, perfect and pure. He's the commander of heaven's armies. And there are legions of angels in heaven worshiping and proclaiming the truth of God, who God is and they are part of the work that he is doing. The, the whole earth is filled with the glory or majesty of God. These angels, their voices have so much power that they shake the foundation of the temple. They shake it, and smoke fills the air as a result of the words they're saying. Quite an image, quite an image that Isaiah gets in this vision of God. Through this vision, Isaiah gets a glimpse of the might and power and awe of God. The following was found written in the flyleaf of the evangelist Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday was a great evangelist back in the early 1900s in America, um, he did uh, meetings all over the country. They built tabernacles for him. Uh, they, literally, he would go into a city, and they would build a huge uh, theater, in a sense, or building for him to meet in. They always had sawdust uh, on the floors. And so Billy Cindy was a, just had a powerful um, impact in this country. Um, and so as an evangelist, when he died, they found his Bible. And inside the flyleaf, he wrote these words. 29 years ago, with the Holy Spirit as my guide, I entered at the portico of Genesis, I walked down the corridor of the Old Testament art galleries where pictures of Noah, Abraham, Moses, Joseph, Isaac, Jacob, and Daniel hung on the wall. I passed into the music rooms of the Psalms where the Spirit sweeps the keyboard of nature until it seems that every reed and pipe in God's great organ responds to the harp of David, the sweet singer of Israel. I entered the uh, the chamber of Ecclesiastes where the voice of the preacher is heard. And into the conservatory of Sharon and the Lily of the Valley where sweet spices filled and perfumed my life. I entered the business office of Proverbs and on into the observatory of the prophets where I saw the telescopes of various sizes pointing to far off events. Concentrating on the bright and morning star which was to rise above the moonlit hills of Judea for our salvation and redemption. I entered the audience room of the King of Kings catching a vision written by Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Thence into the correspondence room with Paul, Peter, James, and John writing the epistles. I stepped into the throne room of Revelation, where tower the glittering peaks, where sits the King of Kings upon his throne of glory, with the healing of the nations in his hands. And I cried out, all hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Billy Sunday said I had an encounter with God through the scriptures. I went through them and I discovered who God is. I get to interact with God through these individuals that he spoke to. See, we can have an encounter with God. Every person must have an encounter with God in order to uh, be called by him. We We can have the same glimpse of God that Isaiah has by the power of God's word and the revelation that it presents for us. Scripture is alive. The Bible tells us that it's alive, it's breathing, it's active, right? And it has the power to speak into your heart and your soul right now. God will use it to speak to you. Fortunately, by God's grace and power, the scriptures were written. These things, these encounters with God were written down and then they were passed down to us so that we have them today. Isaiah had this vision of God and it produced a reaction in him. Every encounter with God does produce a reaction. There's something that must happen as a result of, that, of an interaction or an encounter with God. And Isaiah, this was his response. His response was conviction and repentance. Conviction and repentance. Isaiah 5, uh, 6, chapter 6, verse 5 goes on to say this Then I said, It's all over. I am doomed, for I'm a sinful man. I have filthy lips. And I live among a people of filthy lips. Yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. Conviction always comes after an encounter with God. Seeing God or sensing God's presence reveals to us our sin, it reveals to us our shortcomings, where we have fallen short, where we don't measure up the filthiness that is in our lives. We are never without sin. We're not going to reach sinless perfection. In my opinion, the scripture teaches us that, that it's an ongoing process of being confronted with the holiness of God that reveals to us our sins, and then we confess and repent of them. This is a daily process, but it's something that we must walk in and discover, as Christians do, that this is sweet process. It's not a condemning, defeating, discouraging process. It's a sweet process of growth because God has to take us through this process in order to see us become the people he wants us to become. This is the growth, this is the growth that we must go through. And so it is sweet. It's not discouraging. It's not, uh, it's not defeating. But it's encouraging and it's empowering. Followers of Jesus have learned that this is the process to the path of holiness that God wants to take us on. St. Augustine wrote these words about sin. He said, Sin comes when we take a perfectly natural desire or longing or ambition and we try to uh, desperately to fulfill it without God. Not only is it sin, it is a perverse distortion of the image of the Creator in us. All these good things and all our security are rightly found only and completely in Him. The world, creation, was made for us, not us for it. We're created for God. We're created to represent him, to glorify him, right? We're to be a reflection of him. And the world and creation and all the things that we can enjoy in this life, it was made as a blessing for us. God made it for us to enjoy. When we get those reversed, then we step out of line and we begin to live in sin, pursuing the very things that God gave us to enjoy. The pursuit of those things become good When we have our worship, right, in focus, where we have the one whom we are submitting to and following in focus, the priority of our life, the nature with which we live, are we keeping our eyes on Jesus, focusing on him? This reveals to us the areas in which we have fallen short. It reveals to us the areas where we have things out of alignment, and it allows us with our will to make those corrections and to put God first. Seeing God causes Isaiah to see his sin and feel the weight of its effects. He says these words, I'm doomed. He recognizes his position before God. He recognizes that both he and the people of God, which he serves, are full of sin. He says this, our mouths speak filth. He does not hold back on identifying the depth of that sin. He calls it filthy. This word filthy has within it the idea of disgusting and dirty, obscene and offensive. He's very direct and very honest about his behavior, the behavior of the people, their lips, which reflects their hearts. He's like, we've gotten off track. We're not in the right place. We're walking in a place far from God. I'm not immune from it. I'm there too. When we get ourselves near God and who he is, this is the natural result. We see our shortcomings and our failures. This is to gain an honest perspective of who we are. A lot of people view the conviction that comes from God as crushing and defeating. They feel as though they're in a position where they just can't uh, do anything about it. And to constantly hear about those, their sin and their shortcomings is just, it's its a downer, man. Like, Preacher, would you give me some good news and encouragement? You're telling me about my, uh, my failures, and that's a good thing. It doesn't feel good. Listen, here's the truth of it. God, his goal in revealing to you the truth about who you are. So you get close to him, all of a sudden you see your shortcomings, your failings. It is not to crush you. It is not to destroy you. In fact, it's to lift you up. It's to reveal to you the areas in which you're not walking as you should so that you can change, so that you can make an adjustment. See, when you walk with God, you begin to discover that these times when he reveals to you something is not to defeat you again. It's not to put you down, it's not to smash you, but it is to help you. It's a lifeline that allows you to begin to continue to move towards him. The greatest discouragement and defeat is if God were to give up on us, to give up on showing us these arenas and allow us to just live our own way. That would be... um, that would be the piece of discouragement. But when he shows us, it's uplifting and it gives us a chance to make some adjustments. You may be able to live your life and make it what you want it to be. But how small of an achievement that is. You can only see your life becoming, uh, you, need, you, you can only see what your life is supposed to become when you discover what God wants it to look like, when you begin to get a taste of what God's dreams and visions and plans are for you, and what you'll recognize when you begin to see that is you cannot achieve it on your own. Conviction is the only valid response to seeing God, to coming into contact with him. Once Isaiah is, Isaiah is convicted of a sin and he confesses it, God does something about it See God moves to purify and cleanse Isaiah. Isaiah 6 continuing in verse 6 says this, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched my lips with it and said, See, this coal has touched your lips. You are now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. Our sin separates us from God and his mission for our lives. There is only one solution to our sin, and that is the purification process that God takes us through. It's a process of pur- purification, and there's a purpose for it, right? There's a purpose for it that we're gonna get to. But in this case, God sends an angel, one of these powerful seraphim. He takes a coal from the altar, which is before God. He touches Isaiah's lips, and in doing so, he says, you have now been purified. Your sins have been forgiven. You're now um, you're now in a position that you're able to do what I'm going to want you to do. This is the process. It's the only way that our sins can be removed is by God Himself. There is always a process of purification that we've got to go through in order to become clean, in order to be able to be used by God for His purposes. The nature of sin is that it's corrosive; it will corrode our lives. Sin makes us unable to do God's work because God work, God's work requires godly character. If you're going to engage in the work of God, you're going to have to have God's character being formed in you. If you don't have that, you're going to struggle to do something that would be, would be able to be called God's work. And let me assure you that God's work is what you're being called into. That's what God wants to call you to, to be a part of. So many Do not engage the work of God because they're only living out of their flesh and their their own abilities. And it's simply impossible to do the work of God that way. You will fall short. In fact, I think the work of God will crush you if you try to do it in your own power. It's, It's simply impossible. It just can't be done. It's not the characteristics of the work of God. What he wants to do is put into you his character. He wants you to become like him so that you can engage in the work that he's doing. The master was searching for a vessel to use. On the shelf there were many. Which one would he choose? Take me, cried the gold one. I'm shiny and bright. I'm of great value and I do things just right. My beauty and luster will outshine the rest. And for someone like you, master, gold would be the best. Unheeding, the master passed on to the brass. It was wide-mouthed and shallow and polished like glass. Hear, hear, cried the vessel. I know I will do. "'Place me on your table for all men to view.' "'Look at me,' called the goblet of crystal so clear. "'My transparency shows my contents so dear. "'Though fragile I am, I will serve you with pride, "'and I'm sure I'll be happy your house to abide.' "'The master came next to a vessel of wood. "'Polished and carved, it it solidly stood. "'You may use me, dear master,' the wooden bowl said, "'but I'd rather you use me for fruit, not for bread.' Then the master looked down and saw a vessel of clay, empty and broken, broken, it helplessly lay. No hope had the vessel that the master might choose to cleanse and to make whole, to fill and to use. Ah, this is the vessel I've been hoping to find. I will mend it and use it and make it all mine. I need not the vessel with pride in itself, nor the one who is narrow to sit on the shelf, nor the one... The one who is big-mouthed and shallow and loud, nor one who displays his contents so proud, not the one who thinks he can do all things just right, but this plain earthly vessel filled with my power and might. Then gently he lifted the vessel of clay, mended and cleansed it and filled it that day, spoke to it kindly, there's work you must do, just pour out to others as I pour into you. This all happened to Isaiah for a reason. We're about to see the purpose for this process that God is uh, taking him through. He's revealed himself to Isaiah. The natural reaction of Isaiah is to recognize his shortcomings, his sin, his rebellion, the filth that's in his life. He He confesses it. He agrees with God on it. And then he looks for repentance, a way to turn and to find cleansing. And God provides that for him. God purifies him and, and forgives his sin and makes him whole again. See, God has something that needs to be done. It can only be done by someone who has gone through the process that Isaiah has gone through. God initiates a call and Isaiah responds. Continuing in verse eight of Isaiah six, it goes on to say this, then I heard the Lord asking, who should I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? I said, here am I, send me. When we go through this process with God, we become ready and willing to respond to the work God needs done. This is how it works. This is the process of becoming ready and willing and available. If we're reluctant to pursue a call of God, then it's because we, have gone, we haven't gone through the process that Isaiah went through. We haven't yet gone through it. We've stopped along the way. We haven't fulfilled the process. We haven't walked through it completely. Perhaps we stopped at the encounter and felt intimidated by that or repulsed by that. Many do. Perhaps we stopped at the place where our sin was revealed and we, we pressed back against that. We said, I'm not quite ready to move away from that. We didn't allow God to purify us. If we're reluctant, there's something in the process that we have failed to embrace. Because when we embrace the process and go through it with God, then a transformation occurs. We become, uh, we, we come to a place where we're ready to respond. The only preparation that you need, to, you need to do God's work is to go through his purification process. When you have surrendered completely to God, then you will respond to his call. Bruce Larson uh, tells of a time uh, of how he helped people struggling to surrender their lives to Christ. He said, for many years, I worked in New York City, counseled at my office any number of people who were wrestling with the yes or no decision to surrender their life to Christ and follow him. He said, often I would suggest that they walk from my office down to the RCA building on Fifth Avenue. In the entrance to that building, the gigantic statue of Atlas was there a beautiful, uh, proportioned man who with all his muscles straining is holding the world on his shoulders. There he is, the most powerfully built man in the world, and he can barely stand up under this burden. Now that's one way to live, I would point out to my companion, trying to carry the world on your shoulders. But now come across the street with me and he'd take him to the St. Patrick's Cathedral where behind the high altar, a little shrine, of the boy Jesus, perhaps eight or nine years old, with no effort, he is holding the world in one hand. We have a choice. We can carry the world on our shoulders, or we can say, I give up, Lord. Here's my life. I give you my world. I give you the whole world. We can walk in a place of surrender to the power of God, When we do that, and folks, that's the only way we can do it, then we can engage the work of God. We can begin to see what God wants done around us, and we can become a part of that. But this is what we must do. It's both the way to become a follower of Jesus, and it's a way to walk with him. When I was younger, I worried that God would call me to some place I didn't want to go. I was worried about the call of God because I had parents who were missionaries, and I knew what it could look like, okay? Okay. And I heard stories of missionaries saying, oh, God called me. And it was to a place I thought, God, please don't send me there, right? Please don't send me that place. I don't want to go there. So uh, that's the way I thought about it, right? And I was worried about that. When I got older, though, and I surrendered to God, what I realized is that God would, um, that (laughs) here is I would want to go to the place God would call me. See, the problem wasn't the place. It was my heart. It was my willingness to surrender to the process of purification, to gain the heart of God. That comes from the character of God. He will infuse in you his heart, and you will begin to be able to respond to his call. Isaiah responds to God's call, and then God sends Isaiah on mission. Let's continue reading in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 9. And he said, he being God, yes, go and say to this people, listen carefully, but do not understand. Watch closely, but learn nothing. Harden the hearts of these people. Plug their ears and shut their eyes. That way they will not see with their eyes, nor hear with their ears, nor understand with their hearts, and turn from me for healing." This is a translation from Hebrew, which is the language the Old Testament was written in. What's interesting is that there is a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint or the LXX. And this was done so that Greek-speaking people um, were able to read the Old Testament. In the Greek version of this passage, this this is the way it says it, "'Go and say to this people, "'When you hear what I say, you will not understand. "'When you see what I do, you will not comprehend.'" For the hearts of these people are hardened and the ears cannot hear and they have closed their eyes. So their eyes cannot see and their ears cannot hear and their hearts cannot understand and they cannot turn to me and let me heal them. The truth is that uh, Isaiah was given a difficult mission. Whichever way we look at this, whether it was God, uh, you know, in the Hebrew translation, or the Greek translation, the point is that, that there's, a, there's a double-edged uh, understanding here that people close their hearts to God and God will also work in line with that so that they move to a place of repentance. And so uh, in either case, Isaiah is given a difficult mission to go after. This is not going to be one that makes him popular, that makes other people like him. Oh look, there comes Isaiah. We get a great message. No, he's going to give a message of uh, judgment. He's going to call out people on where they're at and it's not going to be fun for them to hear and they're not going to listen, probably. They're probably gonna harden their hearts and get more uh, obstinate about going the direction that they wanna go. And so Isaiah's calling is difficult. The mission is not easy. It would not be easy to carry out. And I wanna suggest this is always the case when God calls us on mission. He calls us to represent him in the world, and we certainly live in a time where our message is one that's difficult to hear. God's message is aimed at restoration, restoration but it first has to pass through through judgment. The gospel message, which is of Christ died, he died for your sins so you can be forgiven. Well, the first part of the message is you're a sinner and you need forgiven, which quite frankly is a difficult message for many in our day. To hear that they fall short, that they're not in a good place, they're not good people, is in opposition to everything they've been taught. And yet it's the message that the Bible preaches. It's the truth. And if we're going to present that message, we're going to have to be prepared for people not always to respond with enthusiasm and receptivity. There's a difficult angle to it that we've been, called, uh, we've been called to. Going through the process of calling makes us motivated towards the mission God points us to. The mission is different for all of us, but it will be clarified as we walk with God and listen to his voice. Adoniram Judson, uh, a famous missionary from um, years ago, when he graduated from college and seminary, he received a call to a fashionable church in Boston to become an assistant pastor, and everyone congratulated him. His mother and sister rejoiced that he could live at home and continue to do his work, and live near them. But Judson, upon receiving the call, just shook his head. He said, my work is not here. God is calling me beyond the seas to stay here, even to serve God in this ministry, I would feel it would only be partial obedience. I could not be happy at that. Although it cost him a great struggle, he left his mother and sister to follow the heavenly calling. Judson's churches in Burma, India, have, um, have had 50,000 converts to Christianity. His influence is felt around the world because of his obedience. Not all who answer that call of God to go where he's calling them to go see that kind of response. And yet, to be obedient to the call of God is what matters. You, 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 all of you, are called to God's work and to work at his mission. And God clarifies the mission as he interacts with Isaiah in Isaiah 6, going on in verse 11. Then I said, being I being Isaiah, then I said, Lord, how long will this go on? You've asked me to give a difficult message, a difficult um, uh, message to translate or to relay. How long is this going to go on? And he replied, until their towns are empty, their houses are deserted, the whole country is a wasteland. Until the Lord has sent everyone away, and the entire land of Israel lies deserted. If even a tenth a remnant survive, it will be invaded again and burned. But as a terebinth or oak tree leaves a stump when it's cut down, so Israel's stump will be a holy seed. Tough, tough message. How long is this going to last, God? You're putting us under judgment and punishment. How long? Well, until I have knocked all the rebellious and rebellion out of my people, and until there I can, I can resurrect them from the dead, Right? They're going to be like a stump, and life's going to come out of that stump. But nothing that stands is going to remain. See, God puts pressure on people until they turn to him. He puts pressure on his people. He put pressure on his people here in this, uh, in this season. But he does it to see a response, to see them come back to himself. I've talked to many people over the years and, uh, and heard them relay Uh, seasons of difficulty, seasons where things aren't working, uh, tough stuff going on in their life. And typically as I listen to those stories and I I start to see a pattern, I go, listen, listen, listen. Let me just tell you something. God is pursuing you. He's trying to get your attention. If you want the pressure to stop, the way to get that to stop is to turn to him. Turn to him. Respond to him. That's how you get the, because he's going to keep going, because he doesn't give up. He's relentless, and he's after you with everything he has. And that's 100% love, 100% concern, 100% desire to get your attention. And unfortunately, some of us kind of need that two by four upside the head, right? It's the only way we'll stop and listen. And so God's willing to do it. He's willing to work with us where we're at. Again, his mission and purpose not to destroy us, but to bring us back to himself. Once God has their attention, they will listen to the hope that he's bringing. That hope is found in what we call the gospel or good news, right? It's the message of hope. It's the message of salvation. A.B. Simpson is reported to have said that the gospel tells rebellious men that God is reconciling, that justice is satisfied, that sin has been atoned for, that the judgment of the guilty may be revoked. That condemnation of the sinner canceled. The curse of the law blotted out. The gates of hell closed. The portals of heaven opened wide and the power of sin subdued. The guilty conscience healed. The broken heart comforted. The sorrow and misery of the fall undone. Jesus has brought a breaking of the bondage of sin, right? The penalty, the guilt, the curse. He's broke it. And the gospel, the good news of it is that we can be reconciled to God and we can be made right. And this is the message that we're to share. It's the mission God's called us to. And as I said before, he's calling every one of you. In the Old Testament, the call of God was to a few. like Men like Isaiah, uh, there were women that led to Deborah and others. But but it was a call to specific individuals. And God would empower them with his spirit. And he uh, he would call them out on a mission. Listen, in the New Testament, It is made clear that we are all called. If you follow Jesus, you're called both to follow him, you're called to serve in his work, and you're called to reproduce yourself in making other disciples. You are called into the whole thing. And you get the Holy Spirit who dwells within you. You have the word of God, which educates you and trains you. And you're called into these steps. You know, we went through the four chairs of discipleship, the four different calls of Jesus. The call to come and see, and the call to follow to become a follower of Jesus, then the call to serve, to get involved in the work of God, and then the call to reproduce and to make other disciples. God's mission is for all of us. If you claim the name of Jesus, you're called to pursue the mission of God and to work towards it. But in order to do that, we've got to walk through this process that everyone goes through. Isaiah went through it. There is a season And there are seasons of ministry and of preparation that God takes his people through. And I believe if we can look at anything over the past year, it's been one of those seasons that things have been been shaken up. And I've watched people move away from God, further away in their faith. I've watched people move closer to God through this shaking. The truth is that God does these things to bring us uh, to, uh, to get our attention and get us to pay attention to him and to walk us through a process of preparation. It's refinement. It's purification. It's empowerment so that we're ready to do the work he's calling us to. And I believe God has a new season, a fresh season of ministry and calling for us as a church. And so he takes us through this process. Will we engage it? Will we embrace it? Will we allow him to walk us through it and bring us to that place where we're ready to hear his call and we're ready to do the work he's calling us to. God is certainly doing this in my life and he has been. And so my belief is he's going to do it in your life too. Would you respond? Would you embrace it? We have a number of ways to gain clarity as Isaiah did on the mission God's calling us to. Here at Mitchell Brien we have the core classes I mentioned. Those are ways to bring clarity to the calling God has given us as a church and encourage you to engage those, take advantage of them, begin to learn who we are and what we're about so that you can get on board with that. Um, You can also talk to people uh, who are on mission, who have walked through this process. Um, I get to meet with people every once in a while that God's calling and, and they're looking for, man, could you help me understand how this works and get clarity on it? And uh, what, a, what a great privilege it is to, to help with that. Hey, this is what God's done in my life. This is how he's called me. This is how that calling's been refined. You know? And so that's one of the ways we learn. Get around people who have walked down this process. They're a little further than you are in the journey. Read God's word and pray. Your time with God is the most powerful way in which you're going to hear from God and gain clarity on his calling. Get involved in ministry. Um, Get involved in serving. Listen, it's one of the steps of discipleship. It's the training process. And uh, I've often told uh, individuals I've had a chance to meet with over the years who are looking for God's direction, what's God telling me to do? I've said, listen, if you imagine that your life's a ship and you're tied to the dock... It's pretty hard for God to steer your life. But if you'll cut loose from the dock and you'll get out into the open water and you'll put your sails up, God will begin to blow you in the direction he want you to go. He'll steer your life. And I think this principle is true. It's difficult to steer a ship that's tied up, right? And so God can begin to direct your life if you'll jump out, get out onto the open waters. It's a little scary and risky, but allow him to direct your life. My prayer for you and for our church, is that if you've never gone through this process that Isaiah walked through, that you would engage it. I know God wants to meet with you. I know he wants to speak to you. I know he wants to give you an encounter with him, whether it's through his word, time in prayer, in the middle of a crisis, all kinds of different ways in which God meets us. But I know he will, he wants to and he will. If you'll engage him at that level, And listen to him who will walk you through the refinement. And you will be empowered to do his work. My prayer is that you'd walk through that process. And can I just encourage you, I don't know, I really don't care how long you've been a follower of Jesus. You've been walking with him a long time. Um, I have too. And this process continues to happen in my life. It needs to happen. Right? It needs to happen. Um, we know that when we trust Christ, we're forgiven of our sins. It's washed away. It's as though we never sinned. And yet we're told in 1 John 1, 9 to confess our sins. If we confess them, he's, able, uh, he's, um, he, he's just and he will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Right? So we're encouraged to go through this process of confession and repentance. It's a perpetual thing because that's part of our sanctification, being set apart for the work of God. I just encourage you to continue to engage that as a new year begins, to embrace this process that God wants to take us through, that you would allow him to walk you through a purification so that you can continue to do his work. God, we want to surrender to the mission that you've called us to. We want to be your people, obedient, responsive, not rebellious and difficult. God, I pray that you would do a work in me, to soften me to what it is that you want to do in my life. Father, I pray that for all of us, um, for your church and your people, that we would engage that, Father, that we would go into um, those moments with you that might be difficult and a little painful and a little scary, but God, walk us into those moments of encounter with you so that we can see ourselves as we are, so that we can repent and confess and turn and have you purify us so that we can answer your call. God, continue to call us as a church, as individuals. Continue to put that mission in front of us that you've called us to give our lives to. Keep us focused, keep us open, and God, continue to use us to make a difference in this world for you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.